All right. Well, good to be with you this afternoon, church. Looking forward to our time together in the Word. Would you turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12? Um, Hebrews chapter 12 has uh, just some wonderful, uh, rich, and very deep things um, that are so important to the Christian life. And so I really hope today that you find this to be a really uh, foundational for you, really encouraging. Last week, we looked at the Christian life as the, the race of faith. Your, your life lived out as a believer is likened to a race, and it's a race of faith, your life of faith. And the Old Testament examples that we've looked at of these men and these women of faith um, are seen as having already run their race. They've finished it. But to the Jews of the day that these, this author is addressing this letter to, and, and by extension to us then, we are currently running the race. We're living our lives day to day as believers, trying to maintain our faith, be faithful to the Lord. That is the life of faith. That's the race of faith. And we're meant to look back at these Old Testament saints and find encouragement. Um, they finished their race. And if you remember, there were two things we looked at last week that we were told to lay aside when running a race. And one of those things are things that encumber us, things that weigh us down. It's certainly not good to run a race uh, heavily loaded. (laughs) You won't do well running the race. And we talked about those kinds of things that are not good to have with you along the race, the things that can distract us, the things that drain us of our energy and our focus and our time and and, uh, whatnot. We also looked at uh, the idea of laying aside uh, the sin that so easily ensnares us. Obviously, if we're ensnared, we're trapped by sin. We're not running very fast, and we're not running very far. And those two things we were told to run without, but do you remember there's one thing we were told to run with? Endurance. We're told to run with endurance because it is a lifetime of faith, a lifetime of faith. Faithful service to the Lord for a lifetime does take endurance. And we can look to Jesus because he is our greatest example of one who lived a life of of faith fully, completely. Those Old Testament examples are great, but they were flawed men and women. But Jesus, our sinless Savior, remember, he endured the hostility of sinners. He endured the cross, and he did that as one who had never sinned before in his life. He's our sinless Savior. And so obviously we can look to Jesus. He's our greatest encouragement for running that race. And I just want to remind you of the last verse that we looked at last week. It was verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 12. And it said this, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The Hebrews audience that he's writing to, no doubt, were a weary and discouraged bunch. They had experienced persecution due to their break from Judaism and their acceptance of the Christian faith. And so they were weak. They were discouraged. In fact, in chapter 10, if you want to just turn back a page, verses 32 to 34 describe some of the things that they had suffered. Undoubtedly, there were more things, but some of the things they experienced. Look at verse 32. But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, You endured, there's that word again, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. 
For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession. If you look at that, their suffering was largely uh, social. It was largely economic. They, they were uh, likely kicked out of the synagogue as Jews would not be allowed to be there. They were ostracized from the Jewish community. You imagine the impact that would have on your family, on your marriages. They um, were told that they, they had their belongings taken, and, and undoubtedly some were probably imprisoned, as the writer even attests to here. So their suffering was real. That's the point. They had real suffering, and yet he encouraged them to endure, to endure through suffering. And he offers two reminders uh, from, uh, uh, from where they're to receive this encouragement. And this is just sort of an introduction to a greater theme. But uh, these two reminders come to us in verse, uh, verse 4 and verse 5. But one is something that they have uh, not done, and one is something that they have done. And the first one, you see this encouragement for endurance. This first one comes in verse 4. Just look at it really briefly here. Verse 4 says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. So two things to remember, and this first one is this. Remember, and I love that the Bible says this, things are are not as bad as they seem. (laughs) Things are not as bad as they seem. You haven't resisted, he says, to bloodshed. What's he mean? They had suffering, and it was real suffering, but none of them had experienced martyrdom. None of them had been killed for their faith. And if you remember, going through the heroes of the faith in chapter 11, he concluded that that section of examples in a general way of people who had been martyred, remember, people who were sawn in two and who were stoned and who were slain with the sword. But the Hebrew audience, he says, none of you experienced that. You haven't resisted bloodshed. And we can moan about how bad things are, but I see all of us meeting pretty freely in this room right now. No one's knocking down this door. Uh, we're able to pray pretty freely, although I guess it depends on now where you pray. Um, we're able to meet. No one's dragging anyone out to stone them. Things are pretty good. In fact, I say things could get a lot worse. We could be getting martyred right and left. Our prayer meetings could be in secret, and we could be, oh, let's pray for Charles's family. Charles was, you know, crucified today. Uh, let's think about James. James fell down a well. No, I'm just joking. But we would be praying for the persecution that is taking place. And we know that's happening in the church at large and other parts of the world. But for us here, speaking to our audience, the author is doing the same thing. He's saying, listen, you people, I know you people. He says, you haven't experienced this. But notice something else that he says. It's intriguing in verse 4. He says, you haven't resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Now, he does add that. And on the one hand, he probably has in mind what he said about Jesus a verse earlier, that, that he you know, resisted the hostility of, of sinners or he endured the hostility of sinners. But also, it has to do with our own sin. It has to do with our needing to resist temptation to sin. Can you imagine the time where you will be on trial for your life and it's your life in the hands of will you deny Christ? Will you deny the faith? You would be greatly tempted to sin right there. Say, oh, man, you know, but I got a family to feed. I got, you know, you start, you would start thinking practical things. And so he is encouraging them here, really going back to that race, laying aside every sin that so easily ensnares us. 
They're not in a time of persecution. So he says, listen, you're, you're not that bad. We haven't been faced with that kind of a, a, a situation yet. So considering your present sufferings, he's like, here's a different perspective. Things could be worse. Things could be worse. Now, that's helpful to a degree. I understand. Okay, to agree, that's a nice reminder. Um, it's the, the greater reminder that comes here, and this is the big one. It's a reminder that behind the sufferings of the world, behind those things that are coming upon Christians, there is the sovereign hand of a loving and heavenly Father. And that is a bigger thing. And it's all over Scripture, and yet these people had forgotten it. And he, re- he wants to remind them of that in verse 5. He says, remember, God, God's word speaks to you. God, God's word speaks to you in the present day. And in verse 5, he says, and you have forgotten the exhortation, which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, and nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Now, um, it's been a while since the author here has directly quoted from the Old Testament. Um, here he's doing that, um, and that's where he goes for his, his support, right? He's going there. And so verses 5 and verse 6, he's quoting here from Proverbs 3. Proverbs 3, verses 11 to 12. And he's quoting from the, the Old uh, Testament, but the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So it'll look a little bit different. But this is what it looks like if you're looking at the screen. It says, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord, uh, the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. Now, what the author is introducing here is, in this second reminder, is one of the greatest encouragements in all of Scripture that we can possibly hold. It, it speaks to a deeper theological uh, reason to endure the race of faith. And it is the discipline of God. And this is a concept, particularly for our, our newer believers, our young believers, that it's very important to grasp. It's very important that we understand that there is such a thing as the discipline of God. And so we're going to take some time to search out the scriptures today. So let me read the passage. We're reading all the way to verse 11, beginning in verse 4. I know we already kind of peeked at some of those, but let's look at it altogether. Verse 4, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which, which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, when uh, then sorry, you are all illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us. We paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seems best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness." Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of a righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today. And Lord, we recognize there are some really deep and perhaps difficult things to grasp today before us. But Lord, we, we know that we, um, we have the great Holy Spirit with us to illuminate truth, and we pray that your spirit would do that today. Lord, would you help us to see these wonderful truths, that there 
uh, on the one hand, hard to understand, but Lord, once we do, they're so freeing. We just pray that your spirit would be with us, that you would guide us into truth and open up our hearts to receive these wonderful things today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, obviously, the key word in this passage is chastening. You probably wanted me to stop saying the word, but it's all over in there. And it is one word in the Greek. It's uh, paideia, discipline. And if you have a a margin in your Bible, probably that first appearance of chastening in verse 5 has a little number next to it. And in your margin, it says discipline. Now, to understand this passage, you have to understand the word discipline and sort of divorce your mind a bit from our understanding of discipline. Discipline here has the idea of training and education of children, the whole entire package. It's a broad term. It has to do with whatever takes place in training and correcting and cultivating and educating a child, all of it. Please don't forget that as we dig deeper into that, that it doesn't just have to do with smackings, right? It doesn't have to do just with punishment. It's a broad term. It's been called this Christian discipline that regulates character. That's the kind of discipline that our Heavenly Father uses. And this word is all over the place. We see it as a noun, paideia, four times. We see it in verse 5 verse 7 and 8 and 11 as chastening. But we also see it as a verb, paiduo, in verse 6 and verse 7 and verse uh, 10 as chastens. And there's one time where it comes as another noun, another form, paidutes, and it's translated corrected in verse 9. You see that? But it's same root form. So this word is all the way through here. God's use of suffering, hardship, affliction, persecution, all of those things are a means of discipline, and it's a very important concept to understand. Firstly, two things I want to begin with. God's discipline is not to be confused with his judgment. Please don't make that mistake. Our, um, Our Christian life is never one that's lived under judgment. Some Christians never get free of that. Some Christians live far too many years thinking they're still under the judgment of God. Can I remind you of Romans 8.1? Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can say that with me. There is no condemnation for those. There's none. No condemnation at all. We do not get judged according to our sin. God's judgment on sin, that took place one time. It took place on the cross at Calvary. And that judgment was poured out upon Jesus who took your sin. I want to remind you of Colossians chapter 2, which speaks of who we were and who we became. In verses 13 to 14, it says, And you being dead in your trespasses, so that's dead in your sin, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. All of them. Now, when it says all trespasses, it means all past, all present, and all future trespasses. How? Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, okay? There's no requirement or standard placed over you. It's been taken out of the way. Your life is now lived 
in Christ, and that has been nailed to the cross, you're no longer under judgment. You may experience consequences for your sin. Those are natural. Consequences for sin will happen, but you will never be judged for them. Please remember that. That leads to a second thing. For the believer, God does not sit as judge ever. His discipline is never that way, but he enacts fatherly discipline. He sits as your father, which means it's never in wrath. And that we have to divorce from our earthly understanding as well, because perhaps you were disciplined in your way of thinking of discipline in wrath, but we're never to discipline in wrath. Your father in heaven never disciplines you in wrath. He is a father. Look at verses five and six again. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. See, you see, we're called sons there. Repeatedly, God chastens us as sons. In Deuteronomy, Moses is he's, he's, he's instructing the next generation of believers, right? The next generation of Israelites to go into the promised land. God had allowed all the rest of the previous generation, their parents, to die in the wilderness. And he's instructing them on how God is going to interact with them. And this is what he says in Deuteronomy 8, verses 5 and 6. You should know in your heart that as a man chastens his son, so the Lord your God chastens you. Therefore, you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. So God is going to go with you into this promised land. He wants you to obey him. And when you don't, he'll chasten you just like a father will. But he won't judge you. It's quite a different thing. So what does the discipline of God entail? I I want to look at some verses today. This is not really found right in what we're looking at, but you've got to understand it. And so we're going to take some time to do that. Um, As we look at these verses, I think it's going to be helpful to have a more complete understanding of what all of Scripture speaks about in terms of discipline of God. And what comes to view right away are three forms or expressions of of discipline, okay? The first expression of God's discipline is corrective discipline, and that's probably the one that you all think of right away anyway, corrective discipline. We use this same phrase in our biblical parenting class, so biblical parenting if you guys were in there, maybe you've heard that, oh, corrective discipline, it rings a bell. Because the, we say it this way, it's wise correction that gets the understanding of the head so that instruction can reach the heart. Do you get that? Wise correction that gets the understanding or the attention of the head so that instruction can reach the heart. Because what you're trying to reach is the heart. The heart is the goal. Heart change is the desire of corrective discipline. Remember, the Lord's covenant with King David. And he spoke to him about even David's son and Solomon. And he told him the same thing, that he would discipline him as a father. In 2 Samuel seven fourteen, he said, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. I'm going to chasten him because I'm, I'm treating him as my, as my son. And even David, who was a man after God's own heart, he sinned grievously, didn't he? He committed adultery, he committed murder, and he was, he was punished severely for his sin. And God told him that the sword would never depart from his home. And when you look at the rest of, you read David's life, his home, what, what happened in his home? There was rape, there was murder, there was rebellion. It was, a, it was a lot. And yet David was able to look at his life and see God's reason 
for discipline. Listen from David's own lips, Psalm 119, 67 and 71. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. See, David recognized I was going astray. I needed the affliction. I needed the correction. God will put upon our lives corrective discipline as a means of drawing us back to him. That's the same reason we, we discipline our kids, right? They start to go astray. We want to draw them back to us. Do you remember the Corinthian church when we were studying First um, Corinthians? They had a lot of problems, right? They're carnal, they're immature, and among other things, they were abusing the Lord's table. The time that we came up to take a, a communion, they were gorging themselves on, on it and getting drunk, and it was just a terrible sight. Well, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 11, <clears throat> For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. So Paul tells us there that sickness, infirmity, even, even death is actually a, a, a result of sin. God was applying this corrective discipline. Remember Ananias and Sapphira, right? They, they, they died for lying to the Holy Spirit. You could say that's another form of that as well. But obviously not all sickness, not all death, not all those things are all a result, a result of divine chastening. But in Corinth, because of what was going on, the abuse at the Lord's table, Paul had to reveal to them that, hey, listen, some of you are weak, some of you are sick, and even some of those who have died, they've died because of God's chastening. It's a direct result of that. We're chastened by the Lord to steer us back to righteousness. And he says this, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two, on the heels of that, but when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, do you see that? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Go back to Romans 8, right? No condemnation. But when we are chastened, it's so that we are not condemned. It's to bring us back. It's to turn us back, which brings up that question. And we like to ask, can a believer lose his salvation, a real believer, one who has saving faith in Christ? No, there's no condemnation. So, so we're kept by divine decree because God has said it. But we're also kept by divine intervention because God will apply the appropriate discipline to keep us from going to the point of condemnation. Does that make sense? We don't go to that point because he turns us around. If a sinning and unrepentant believer falls far enough into sin, God will simply take their life. They're just no longer here. So on the one hand, oh, it sounds good. I'm no longer here. I at least go to heaven. But listen, I wouldn't want to meet my Savior that way. But see, it's an act of, of mercy, if anything, it's an act of mercy. Lamentations 3, 31 to 33, it says this, For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. He, he, will, he will do it, but he will be merciful in it. God chastens those he loves with a corrective discipline. And you also have to trust the Lord, just to kind of add this, that he's going to uh, moderate the, 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 the force of that and the duration of that. You have a loving father, and you have to trust him with that. That's corrective discipline. There is another form that appears in Scripture. It's preventative discipline. Preventative discipline is, well, to prevent us from sinning. It's not because we're sinning or because we're on the wrong path, but he doesn't want us to go there. 
And so things are placed within our life to keep us on the straight and narrow. Think of Paul's thorn in the flesh. He had an amazing vision. He was taken to the, the heavens. He saw things and heard things that he said, well, if I come back and, 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 and tell everybody about this, I'm just going to be boasting about it. And in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul tells us what happened as a result. In verse 7, and lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation. So unless I, I brag about it and become prideful and puffed up, a thorn in the flesh was given to me. Ever had a thorn in your flesh? A, a thorn you can't actually remove and it just sits there and just it bugs you all day long. He had something like that going on. He calls it a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that I might depart from me. I know that we've looked at these verses recently, but then he says to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. So listen, sometimes you've got some ailment, some difficulty, something that's going on in your life. We've got to begin to look at the eternal, the big picture. You're a child of God. And I know like we, we, we'd like to understand God's sovereignty in a, maybe a broad way, that he's generally governing the events of man, maybe the, maybe the big things. But scripture doesn't actually stop there. Scripture says he knows every sparrow that falls. And it's not speaking about his, his omniscience that he just knows that. That's, that would ruin that whole passage. Oh, don't worry about what you'll eat and what you drink. God knows what you need. He won't do anything about it, but he knows. You know, it's his foreknowledge. No, no, no. It's about him knowing and meeting it. That's the point. He meets it because he's intervening in the affairs of man. He does it all the time, and particularly for his children. So when we're undergoing difficult things, we have to remember God is doing something here. He's going to bring something out of this. Sometimes it's preventative discipline. And remember the broad term of discipline. Again, anything that goes towards our education, uh, toward maturity, that's the idea. Another form of discipline, this is the last one I'll look at just today so we can get to the actual passage, is uh, educational discipline. This is the kind of discipline that just comes strictly to help us to know more about the character of God, to learn more about his ways. And who is a prime example of that? Job. Job, right? Job was a blameless man, upright. Um, he feared God. He shunned evil. And yet God allowed him to suffer great loss great physical pain, uh, great ridicule. His wife told him to curse God and die. All right, so he even had a great wife. What was Job's response there? Job 2.10. But he said to her, to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. What Job said there wasn't sin, it was truth. We can accept good, but we also can accept adversity. Why? Because God sends it. God sends you adversity. He sends you suffering. He does do it. That's the point. He understood that adversity came from God. He didn't understand the reason, though. You might not understand the reason. One of his friends was on the right track. Remember his, his buddies that came in and tried to give him wisdom? Eliphaz said to him, 
in Job 5.17, Behold, happy is the man whom God corrects, therefore do not despise the chastening of the Almighty. And that's true. If God's correcting you as a believer, you're like, oh, I, I can be happy about it because it's, it's going to be putting me back on the right path. But Job knew that he was not undergoing corrective discipline. He knew it didn't have to do with correction. He knew his conscience was, was clean on that. He wasn't sinning before God. At the end of it all, Job realized it was educational. When he got to the end of it, he understood God more clearly, and that was worth it all. Job 42, verses 4 to 6, he said, Listen, please, and let me speak, speaking to God. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. All Job did was question God. That's all he did. He just questioned God. Why are you doing this? And God said, do you know who you're talking to? I uphold all these things. I told the waves to come this far, no further. And you're actually asking me why I'm doing this. You're my son, and I've got a very good reason for it. At the end of the day, he realized, I repent in dust and ashes. It's actually arrogant of us, isn't it? Understanding the chastening of the Lord is key, key in enduring suffering and enduring the race of faith, the life of a Christian. It's difficult. James Moffat said, to endure rightly, one must endure intelligently. It's understanding the ways of our God. These are laid out for us in scripture. And you might ask, well, how do we know which form of correction are we, are we in? How do we know our, our discipline? Are we in corrective? Am I in preventative? Is this, you know, listen, I remember actually uh, when I was first learning these things, um, and I, I asked my, my missions pastor, and uh, he said, the first thing I do when I start to go through a real difficult time is I prostate, prostrate, sorry, not prostrate, prostrate myself before God. I, I flat out lay there, and I petition him. I examine my heart truthfully to see if there is any sin. And if there is, then I know he's bringing me back on the right path. I've, I've got I've to get back. I've got to repent. So it, is, it begins there. But he said he was able to get up from this particular thing he was going through and say, I have a clean conscience. And it, it allowed him to then accept uh, the, the other disciplines in his life as something God was going to do. He's going to educate me. I'm going to see him greater. I'm, and I just thought, wow, what a perspective. What a perspective to have. Rather than just moaning all the time about our lives, like, actually, God's doing that. It's okay. I'll, I'll rejoice in it. So let's get back to the scripture here, because in our passage, we're going to see some evidences from God's discipline. How do you know um, about God? How do we learn about God through discipline, basically? What, what, what evidence um, is there? Well, look at verse 6. The first one is clear, is that he loves us. When you're disciplined, it is a evidence that God actually does love you. If you didn't ever get any difficulty, discipline in your life, I probably would actually question if you're his son. Well, that's not my words. He says it here. But so in verse six, it says this, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. That's the first part of six. For who he loves, he chastens. And that should be the most reassuring point of all. I'm going through a real difficult time. God really loves me. <laughs> Could you do that? Yes, because whom he loves, he chastens. Revelation 3.19, Jesus is speaking to the churches in Revelation. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Zealous and repent. I'm chastening you because I love you. I'm calling you back. I want you to repent. 
Listen, God does not do anything apart from or contrary to his love for you. If you're looking at the events in your life going, God must really have a thing against me, man. He is really hammering me. He really must hate me. You're, you're, you're looking at the wrong God. This is not the God of the Bible. He never does anything contrary to his love for you. It's all done out of his love for you. It's just our short-sightedness. In Psalm 89, verses 30 to 33, it says, If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, so basically disobedience, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness I will not utterly take from him nor allow my faithfulness to fail. Yeah, it's going to hurt. I'm going to strike him. I'm going I'm to punish him. I'm going to do these things, but my love will not fail. He, will, he still loves you in it. He's faithful in it. So it's evidence that he loves you. It should be a reassuring thing. Second evidence is that we're his children. We're his children. Look at six, the second half of verse uh, 6. He, um, and he scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure, this is verse 7 now, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Now, just before we jump into that, there are several ways that we can know we're children of God. It's not just through discipline. One of them is through your faith. We're told that it is simply through your faith that you become a child of God. You have faith in Jesus. We're told you're a child of God. And that's in John 1, 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Do you believe in the name of Jesus Christ? Have you received Jesus Christ? You're his child. That's it. You know it. The other way we know it is through the Holy Spirit. And Romans 8, 14 says this, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out. What do we cry out? Abba, Father. Yep. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You have faith in Jesus Christ. You also have the Holy Spirit. And he testifies the fact, the truth, that you're his child. So he is your father. You're his son. And discipline in our lives is the other area that gives evidence to our sonship, and that's what this verse is speaking about. It's part of the loving care of a father. The Bible says that a father who does not discipline a child actually hates him. That's the word he uses, hates his son. Proverbs 13, 24, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. I mean, look what it says. It says, what son is there whom a father does not chasten? It was actually unheard of in that day that a father would not discipline their child. What, that's what he says. Well, what, what son does it? What father doesn't do that? What son isn't chastened? Of course, they're all chastened. It was just not heard of. Quite a different world we live in today, isn't it? Where governments want to come in and say, well, that's our right. My heavenly father chastens me because he loves me. We chasten our children because we love them. To fail in that regard, we're told, is to wish for their destruction. Proverbs 19, 18 says, Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. In fact, look at verse 6 again. It says, He scourges every son whom he receives. You know what scourging is, right? It's a flogging. as a brutal, severe punishment. Flogging with with a whip. 
And sometimes God's discipline, it is severe. But we got to remember that it's because he loves us and it's evidence that we're his children. It's evidence of sonship. Proverbs 23, 13 to 14 says, Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. He's looking at the eternal, right? Yes, I've inflicted temporary pain so that they will avoid everlasting pain and suffering. And then he says that all true sons, if you're really a son, you're partakers. Did you see that word? Partakers of his discipline. In verse 8, of which you all, you all have become partakers. Every true son or daughter, every true child of God is a partaker of discipline. And that word partaker has been used all through Hebrews so far, but all probably greater things in your mind. We're partakers of a heavenly calling. We're partakers of Jesus Christ. We're partakers of the Holy Spirit. Hey, we're partakers of discipline. (laughs) But we are. That's what he says. You're all partakers of chastening, and, and we should glory in that as well because it's proof that he loves us and it's proof that we're his children. Amazing. When we look at the world today, we look at the prosperity, at least the parent prosperity of the wicked. We look at the uh, seeming success they have and, and the victories, even recently in the church and these things, and it just seems like these things are just going unhindered. There's no obstruction. There's no difficulty. Um, there's no discipline going on in, in those people's lives. Then you've got to remember that's because they're illegitimate. They're actually not sons of God. But you are. You're a partaker of the chastening of God. You're his child. And we can happily accept his loving discipline because it conf- uh, confirms our relationship. Another evidence of his discipline is this. Since in verse 9, he desires obedience. It does show that he wants obedience out of us. Verse 9 says, Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? Remember, corrective and preventative discipline are reminders about this very, uh, this, this very thing. Our earthly fathers basically disciplined us. They gave us the best, you know, did the best they could, right? They corrected us, and and... We, I know this is not universally accepted because people had bad fathers. People were disciplined in, in ways that were unnecessary, out of anger, with unnecessary force. But listen, that was never the intention at all. Discipline out of love is what was meant from the very beginning, and that's what it's meant by us. We've made mistakes as parents, right? We haven't done it all right, but we're told to discipline and desire that obedience from our children, and God desires that uh, from us as well. He's trying to save us from pain, save us from making terrible mistakes, having harder life because of some choices. He's, he's actually trying to guide us back. You know, what I've noticed too, when we have discipline out of love and we've done it consistently, uh, the, the, the opposite has happened. Our kids have actually drawn closer to us because of that. I can't explain it. Doesn't make sense naturally, but isn't the same with you and your heavenly Father? He brings us back. We say, "Oh yes, Lord, I needed that. Thank you for bringing me back from that place." In Proverbs twenty nine fifteen, it says, "The rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother." So it does. It brings wisdom. We realize, "Oh, I needed that." But listen, you leave a child to themselves, only shame. God does not leave us to ourselves. He disciplines us. 
God uses that discipline to bring about a respectful and obedient heart. And he doesn't want resentful resignation. Okay, all right, fine, God. He wants a willing and obedient heart. That's what he wants from all of us. And this argument in here is from the lesser to the greater, isn't it? If, if we respected our earthly fathers, how much more should we, should we submit to the heavenly father? He said the father of spirits is what he's called here. The, the, the soul, your very soul, eternity. Our human fathers just deal with the body, right? But your heavenly father deals with your eternal, eternal spirit, your soul. And he gives us life eternal. Another thing that he desires, another evidence here is he desires holiness. And this is in verse 10. For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Our parents did the best they could, is what he's saying. And they probably made mistakes. But you can rest assured God never makes mistakes when he disciplines. He's doing it for your profit, for your good. And that's what he says. It's for your good. And I know this is a very well-known verse, but let me just give it to you because I want to work it out a little bit. Romans 8, 28 says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. Do you know that? Do you know that all things work together for good? All things. It says all things. Bodily pain, weakness, financial struggles, all things work together for the good. Because when my body is weak, then I'm strong. When I'm financially struggling, I'm ceasing to rely on my own resources. You see, it's, it's got to be looked at that, that way. All things work. Work. That's another word in there. If God was doing nothing, we would have a reason to worry. But God is actually working. He's working those things to a good end. All things work. That's amazing. The heart that loves God and understands that he's, he's busy, even during the most trying of times, right? He's busy. All things work together, all together, over the course of our life. He's like an artist. He uses a variety of, of, of colors, and, and, he's, and he's blending them together. It's all coming together to work for good, for good. And you can go, how, how can this be good? I mean, how can this, this can't be good? Look at what's happening to me. This can't be good. The good that he speaks of is always spiritual. It's for your spiritual good. It's for our spiritual good. What spiritual quality does he ultimately desire? It says here, holiness. He wants holiness. 1 Peter 1, 15 to 16, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. Positionally, we've talked about this, we are holy, but practically we're being made holy, aren't we? More like Christ. God's discipline is necessary in our lives in order for sanctification to progress. We can't progress toward holiness when we're toying with sin, when we're encumbering ourselves, right? Running the race with all those things. He wants us to progress towards sin, uh, towards holiness. Romans 8, 29 says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. He wants us to be Conformed to Christ. To be conformed to the image of his son means that we must accept the discipline as a son. You can't be conformed to the image of the son without accepting the discipline as his son. It's not easy, but that's what he calls us to do. One final thing he desires, and that is fruit. Verse 11. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. He wants fruit. It's painful. 
It's difficult at the time, but we got to look at the end. We got to look to the harvest. If we desire the harvest, then we got to welcome the discipline. I, I want there to be a harvest at the, the end for him, the fruit. Jesus desires fruit. And remember when he tells that parable of the, the soils and the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, 23, the seed that fell on good ground, it says this, he who receives seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundredfold, some 60, some 30. Everyone's bearing different fruit, but there must be fruit there. The harvest, the peaceable, he says, the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who've been trained by it. Gunadzo, it's a gymnasium kind of a word. It's where we get our gymnasium from. Vigorous exercise of the mind and body. We've been trained through our life by the discipline of God. It's going to produce wonderful fruit. In our biblical parenting classes, we We've talked about discipline in the uh, training stage, you know, sort of four to 12 years of age. And it's in those years where continual loving discipline must be administered to train a child to be respectful and to be obedient. And we're in our training years, folks. We're, we're in those, those years. The training is going to bring wonderful fruit in our lives, chief of which is righteousness, holiness. And I just want to close with this wonderful quote that I found from uh, J. Oswald Sanders, actually just this morning in my own devotional, not even related to this, and I thought, I've got to have to read this here. He says this, Our reaction to family problems and financial reverses, to suffering and disappointment, to thwarted ambitions and disappointed expectations is all important. If we submit, feeling that resistance is unavailing, that is better than continued rebellion. If we acquiesce in God's dealings, although without joy, that is higher ground. But it is when we embrace God's unexplained providences with a song that God is most glorified and we are most blessed. He doesn't want us to go, all right, well, God's doing something. It's when we embrace it with a song. I love that. I can't remember who it was that was in the Aberdeen prison, but he used to put on the top of his letterhead the letters he'd write from prison saying, Aberdeen Prison, God's Palace. He just embraced it. He said, I'm where God wants me to be because God was doing something in his life. And we're going to close with a song that speaks about that very thing, Blessed Be Your Name. And we're praising him even when things are difficult because we know he's doing something good. We're going to pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us today. We thank you, Lord, for disciplining us for the chastening of God. Lord, we thank you that there is such a thing, that you do love us as your children, that you don't just allow us to run about willy-nilly, doing whatever we please, but Lord, you desire our good. And so you, you bring in difficulty in our lives. And it's always, always, always for a purpose, Lord. And maybe some of us are undergoing that right now. We're just, we're, we're, we're getting that correction. Lord, I just pray that they'd see that. We'd see it. Repent from sin. Come back to God. Continue on the path that he wants you on. Maybe some people are, are, are afflicted with something and they don't know why. Perhaps the Lord is just keeping you humble, preventing you from pride, preventing you from self-reliance. Look to those things. They're of greater value. Perhaps just at the end of it, 
You won't know anything until the end of your life, and you'll look back and understand God in a greater way and see him in a greater light. Whatever it is, it's part of our enduring this race of faith. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help your saints to do that with this new perspective, looking that beyond the hardships themselves to the one who sends the hardships because he loves us. Thank you that you do. We pray that you bless your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you stand with us and we'll sing this uh, wonderful song together.